You're listening to Technically 200, a podcast about some amazing Black and Latino women in STEM. This new season, in honor of Black History Month, we're celebrating the stories of Black women in STEM. Stay tuned each week for interviews and roundtable conversations because we'll be talking to women in tech, entrepreneurship, finance, and much, much more. This is the first of a series of technically 200 talks or roundtable conversations where it's not just a one-on-one, but one-on-two plus. And I am very excited about this one because we have Miss Jessica Oriemi, once again, from IBM, technical product manager. And we've got uh, Miss Katie Caldwell, technical program manager at Facebook. Such a pleasure to have you both here tonight. So I just want to start off with one question for, for each of you. And why don't we start with Katie? Katie, what's your first memory of being excited about tech? Hmm. My first memory of being excited about tech, it has to be, I think in my freshman year computer science course, it's like an introduction to computer science. I just remember I had started at Princeton as a chemical engineer and I was just like, I was in my first like chemistry class and I was like, this is like watching paint dry. Like, this is not like the chemistry I know from high school. And I was just really excited about this idea of studying chemical engineering. But when I, I took my first computer science course, everyone had warned me before the course that it was going to be so challenging and difficult. And I just remember just like enjoying every assignment and every assignment just felt like it felt like a puzzle and it felt fun. And I, I felt like I was spending just an inordinate amount of time just focused on my computer science work over my like chemistry homework. And I hadn't even gotten into sort of like the chemical engineering courses yet. And I was like, this don't make sense. Why am I studying something that I am like, like begrudgingly getting through versus just studying something that I love. So I just remember just being super excited about the next assignment in computer science, like always wanted the next one, wanted to do like the extra credit. I love that. And, and so Jess, I'll ask you that same question. Yeah. So let's see. I got into the tech industry per se a little bit later in life, but I remember the first time I was excited about anything STEM related was in elementary school when I found out, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of them, like, Rube Goldberg projects. Um, Like, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Pee-wee's Big Adventure, but like at the very beginning, he has all these contraptions that connect to each other to do different things. But I kind of found out in elementary school, there was, we were introduced to the, the concept of a Rube Goldberg project. And I just thought it was so cool. So I did something similar for a science fair project. And I, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. Um, as far as, you know, the tech industry goes, I think that happened much later in life for me. So that probably didn't happen for me until I was working. And I think we've chatted about this a little bit before, but I was working in the oil industry And it just occurred to me that, you know, I was out on the rig drilling wells and that was great, but there was this whole other world behind what we were doing, you know, software and and systems that was kind of powering everything that we were doing out in the field. So I think that's when I first got into um, tech per se. Jessica, I did the Rupa Goldberg as well when I was younger. Yes. I, I loved it. I went to like the, I, I went always to the national competitions. Like, and since I was so close to Purdue, I was in Ohio growing up. Yep. 
So I would go to Indiana just to go see what the Purdue students had like cooking up. So I love Rube Goldberg. I did that when I was like really young. What is the most like extravagant way to crack an egg? Like those problems are so, so cool. Or do you guys, I don't know if you remember the game um, Mousetrap. I love that game. It's kind of like that. Yeah. So wait, so sorry. So in Purdue, they, so Purdue University, they had whole competitions for the most extravagant Rube Goldberg machines? Yeah, so the Rube Goldberg, as Jessica was mentioning, uh, so Rube Goldberg, um, it actually comes from an engineering um, challenge. So um, what they what they do, uh, so it's usually college age, uh, so colleges tend to compete against each other. So when I was an elementary stu- a student, I helped design one and I went to nationals based off a design that I had. I didn't actually engineer it. It was just more of like a design of like, how would one actually, you know, do something simple? And they give you a number of steps that you have to uh, complete it in. So think of it as like, yeah, think of it as like uh, people have built a lot of these. You can go to YouTube and, and see all these different variations, but things as super simple, like pouring a glass of milk and people will they will do things like you start with the domino, you know, dropping a domino, then you do something else. And then it has like, people have these extravagant ways. Um, but typically uh, each year, college age students, they compete. Um, and what they're given is an assignment, like a task, and then they're given a number of steps and then they have to uh, like engineer how to do it. And, and usually it's like, as ingenious as the design is, as well as like, are you actually um, uh, completing it based off the constraints um, supplied? So uh, super interesting. I love that Jessica, you and I have that shared sort of experience as a a, elementary students. It's super cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a really, it's, you know, you would never want to do that in real life, but it's like a really fun challenge and it's a really fun project. And you two actually know each other. We do. We do. do. So, (laughs) so Katie and I know each other from Princeton. Um, I graduated a couple of years ahead of her, but we were friends and also um, in Nesby together. So we were um, both a part of the, our Princeton chapter of the National Society of Black Engineers together. And I think that's how we met. Is that how we met or did we just meet like, you know, out and about? No, we met there. So I remember meeting Jessica Odayemi and um, at the time she was the vice president of the National Society of Black Engineers chapter at Princeton. I even in my head right now, I'm envisioning like the moment I met you because my life changed. So, (laughs) so, so, yeah. No, <laughs> yeah, I remember we, what food we had that night. Um, I remember like that. I know it's like it, my life changed that night. So what did we have? Um, I believe we had Chick-fil-A. Okay. That night. Sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's been a, you know, Chick-fil-A has had some interesting years, but you know, still delicious chicken. So, um, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, I think like we met, yeah, it was a while ago. It's, been a while. I'm not going to say the and years. Forever. Oh my goodness. Don't, don't age us like that. But it's been a while. <laughs> well, wait. I mean, way to make an imprint, right? I mean, great conversation plus Chick fil A. That's, that's, the way to do it. <laughs> that's how we reeled them in with like free food. And that's how we got members to, to join and <laughs> the National Society of Black Engineers. So, well, so, so it's, it's, Whenever I I meet someone from Princeton, I always, growing up, I always had this view of Princeton as this really tall building. I I know that there are more than, there's more than one building, but this really (laughs) tall building with Ivy on it. And and that's about it. I didn't, I didn't envision the classrooms. I didn't envision the people. I just saw this place that I wasn't going to get in. So can you, can you talk to me about that perception of, of Princeton, because I think access is is so important. And when when you're talking to to anyone about equity and about access to institutions like this, that for a very long time have not had a lot of people who looked like us, talk to us about what that access looks like and and how real my perception was. 
Yeah. I mean, you're not wrong in terms of the perception of, you know, what kind of person goes to Princeton. And quite honestly, Princeton has an interesting past. I think Princeton, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Katie, but I think Princeton was the last Ivy League school to admit women. So, I mean, on a lot of levels, that perception is is not for nothing, right? There's been some challenges in the university's history for sure that, you know, it's had to reckon with and own up to. One thing I will say, though, and I think it's a, a little bit of a misperception of Princeton, of, of other Ivy League schools and of other top schools in general, is that they're looking for this cookie cutter, like, you know, 4.0, um, ooh, Okay, so this is how old I am. Um, the SAT was on a 1600 scale, I think, like when I took it. And I don't think that's true anymore. I think it's like 2400. Um, but, you know, they think of this cookie cutter, like perfect SAT score, perfect grades. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Like Princeton is looking for people who have excelled academically, for sure, which, you know, there are some issues with how you measure that even. I, I think the biggest misperception is that, you know, the, the process is a little bit more holistic than, than people might expect. If you think about it this way, if Princeton was just looking for, you know, perfect SAT scores and perfect 4.0 GPAs, I mean, that's actually really easy to find in the, the grand scheme of things. Like there are more people who fit that profile than can possibly get into any one class, right? So it has to be something else. And I think that something else is Princeton recognizes that academics in the traditional sense is one piece of the puzzle of what is going to constitute your entire education. So I think what the school is actually looking for, you know, are folks who they think in some way are going to add to the fabric of this, the school. Because I think part of the learning is learning from your peers, learning from their experiences. That being said, I think Princeton, along with all the other Ivies, have, still has you know a ways to go in terms of improving access, improving its admissions process. But I do think that that's um, a misperception. I think the other thing that I would be remiss if I didn't speak about is I think a lot of people don't apply because it's really expensive, you know? And one thing I really want to point out about Princeton and and a couple of the other Ivies as well is that they don't want, if you just think of, you know, the the mission of the school and and what the school's trying to do, I, I truly believe that Princeton does not want costs to be the barrier that makes the difference between, you know, a really talented uh, young person, you know, going or not going. And so I think a couple of other schools have have come on board to this. But um, when I went to Princeton, I think it was against, they didn't let students take out um, loans. They would find a way to cover that either with grants or, you know, or, or, scholarships or, or what, whatever it may be, or, or work study. Now, that's not to say that, you know, everything's peachy and, and you're walking around Princeton with, you know, your pocket full of cash. That, that, that's not the case. But, but I do think, you know, my family, like I come from a very working class family. And I think, you know, it's because of Princeton's financial aid policy and, and, and kind of stance that I was able to, to attend. So I think those two things are, are really important to add to the conversation on, on access. You know, it's, it don't, it's not some cookie cutter picture. Um, I met a lot of different types of people and backgrounds, you know, while I was there and I'm sure Katie, you would agree. And then I think Princeton along with other schools make it try the best they can to make it financially accessible as well. You're making me wish I had applied. <laughs> My alma mater doesn't feel the same way. <laughs> well, well, so what? What's what's really interesting in in having both of you on, and I and I love this is the fact that 
you haven't mentioned it explicitly, but I'm hearing about the role that mentorship played. And Katie, I would love to hear from you. Uh, for one, would you consider Jessica a mentor? And and two, what has that mentorship looked like in your role as a technologist? Yeah, yeah, I can take that on. So I think this definitely really like help, like there's a good transition from what Jessica was just mentioning about just access to Princeton. And also sort of you were alluding a bit in your answer, Jessica, about um, navigating Princeton. Um, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about navigating Princeton, um, especially given that I had you, someone who had not only navigated um, the engineering school, but sort of navigated your experience and then post Princeton. Um, so as we mentioned before, Jessica and I know each other from Princeton and uh, specifically from uh, the Princeton National so- um, chapter of the National Society of Black Engineers. And when I met Jessica, you know, she was already like on top, like she was like running things. And, um, you know, I was like, I was so impressed. I was like, oh, she has this whole presentation together. She has, she knows the connects. Like, I remember you introduced me to the Dean of engineering school and you were like, you just knew people. Like you knew the professors, you knew, like you were connected to graduate students. Like you were navigating the campus in a way that I hadn't really navigated. I was a freshman, you know? Um, And so I just felt like, I felt like, you know, Jessica, like I already looked up to her, even if she didn't think that I did, I like looked up to her and I was like, I want to be like her. And I think like for me, what I would see as like mentorship, even if it's like informal, as I feel like, you know, Jessica is a friend, I would say more so than a mentor, but she was like, she was definitely a mentor because I saw her and I saw how she was navigating Princeton and, and she was so humble and also just so vulnerable with me. And that vulnerability, that humility really led me to be able to navigate Princeton and navigate like internships. Like I remember she was like talking about the job fair and like, Hey, everybody go to the job fair. Like you were keen on getting us like uh, jobs and internships. And I just remember just, just how you navigated that. And then also thinking through your transition. And I remember us having um, conversations like that, even if you thought were super informal and just like friends catching up was like, so great for me to sort of see how you navigated your career transitions within a company, uh, leaving a company. And then also just sort of how you were navigating your life and thinking about graduate school and, and also just recognizing like, you know, I'm bigger than any specific like characteristic of my life. Like I'm bigger than the school that I attended. I'm bigger than, you know, the role that I'm in right now, that there's always a possibility for something more. So I don't know if I'm answering your question very well around mentorship, but if I were to think through like, what does a mentor look like? Jessica is more than a mentor. Uh, She's like a mentor plus for me. Um, So, yeah. Were Were you aware of all that, Jessica? I, w- I was not, and I, I promise I did not pay her to say I did not pay her to say this. Cash um, app I- is still available. Cash app. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, honestly, though, that, that, like, it really means a lot. So two things. Number one, it's, it's just so interesting that you say that because I feel the same way about um, you. So there's... Uh, when I was vice president, there's uh, a, there was the president at the time, um, our mutual friend, Rochelle, and I just kind of felt the same way. And Rochelle and I are, you know, friends. Um, but I, I honestly, I, I felt, you know, just kind of by her living out that example, you know, she didn't even maybe know um, how much of an impact she had on me, but but she she really did just by kind of being there and and living her life and really kind of to, to your point, Katie, living her life beyond, you know, Princeton. And the second thing, um, and the part that Katie conveniently left out, um, is that she has taught me a lot as well, because I don't know, cause you, so Katie started, um, 
at her previous company before. Um, so she started in the tech industry, you know, way before I was even considering the tech industry. And I remember, I don't know if you remember this, Katie, but I remember calling you up because I was thinking about making that transition. And I was trying to find my footing coming from, you know, a completely different industry from the oil industry into the tech industry. And I was calling Katie up asking probably some really like, in my head, I was like, oh my gosh, is this a dumb question? Like, I know nothing yet like about this space. And so I was asking Katie like all these questions. And I say that because I think, you know, I think when we think mentorship, we think someone that is, you know, older than us or like a, an exec or whatever. But I, I do really believe in the power of informal mentorship. And I think that can take so many forms, right? Like what Katie was speaking to, which, you know, we've both experienced, whether that's somebody just kind of living, observing the example of someone else living their life, but also just by, you know, one of the things that, that Princeton gave me in addition to getting Katie as a friend is, you know, really her as a part of this network of people that if I don't know something, I, I feel like I can just call and ask, you know, silly in quotes questions about a space that I know nothing about. So I think that's what mentorship looks like, right? So maybe not necessarily like a weekly one-on-one -on -one with your manager, you know, it, it can look like your own friend group. So, so I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. And I love how even in your description, it's so informal. Um, and that's something I really want to make sure that people are aware of is that mentorship really isn't, as you were saying, Jessica, it isn't that weekly one-on-one or monthly one-on-one. Um, often what I found the best mentors for me have been people who we never formally said we were mentor mentee or established that relationship. But you sort of find those gems, you know, like those sort of like, those sort of like, when I say gems, I mean, there's like these uh, really good, like information that you can get from someone or this like, you know, really great insight that they have based off an experience that they've had before um, that you can use. And that's like very, like very usable for your life. Um, so, I, I mean, for me, I mean, sometimes it is great to establish like a very formal mentor mentee a relationship just so that there's some sort of like contract in a sense like you know by contract i mean having the ability to sort of measure yourself and measure like your growth through that but i do think that um having just you know a friend where you can just share your challenges and your experiences and like your failures and successes with and then just sort of like you know push it off of each other so use use it as a sounding board while also sort of uh, really helping you sort of mold, you know, or map how you sort of want to navigate whatever you're navigating. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear that. So thank you, Jessica, for, for mentioning that. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm super um, excited to just see you, you know, um, because you've been so influential to my life and I definitely would not be at Facebook right now without you. So thank you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I love that technically 200 is bringing people together yeah. <laughs> or at least yeah. for, the, for the evening. You're, you're, you're already connected. And it's, it's so, it's so funny that you, you say that mentorship doesn't have to take such a formal role, Katie. I think a lot of us perceive it to be that you have to court somebody and you have to follow up with them consistently. And whereas I've learned just what you said, I mean, one of the most influential people in, in my life, uh, Chike Agu, he was a classmate of mine and he just talked to me about education. He would talk to me when I was trying to break into K-12 about books that I needed to read, resources, uh, help me prepare for interviews. And, and now here I am. And he would not consider himself a mentor, but I think based on that definition that you just gave, he was absolutely a mentor. And I'd love to transition to the other side of this because you all have supported each other and it sounds like you can both attribute a lot of your success to the support you 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 um 
you gave, but what about being a black woman in tech? What does that support look like? Because your network is fantastic that you were able to find each other at Princeton of all places, especially given how you described it. But now you're in tech, which looks a lot like Princeton and it's a, it's a much bigger playing field. So what has support looked like? What do you, what, what are you frustrated with? What are you excited about? And, and what do you think is coming up? And so for me as a black woman in tech, I think like it has been a mixed bag. Like I've had some really great managers. I've had some really bad managers. I've had some really great teams that I've been on some really interesting teams that I've been on. Um, but I do think that for me, what has been super helpful is having that mentorship, um, seeking out community of other black women, um, not just black people, but black women specifically in technical roles, wherever I met, um, just so that I can have not just shared camaraderie, but also have like, just sort of like this person who has either, you know, been through what I've been through or is about to go through maybe some of the challenges that I'm going through. So we can actually have this sort of shared community where we can do exactly what Jessica and I have done in the past, like share experiences, share challenges, share like ways you can mitigate around them. So for me, I think as if you're joining or or considering joining a company or a team, you always want to have manager support. So someone who really, you know, that you're working with, who's looking over your shoulder, knows that, you know, you know, always is going to be there for you to help you grow. Um, But you also want to have sponsorship. So beyond just having the support from your manager and then being sure you're in the right environment, like those features that I said before, um, you also want to have that sponsorship from people who are within your sort of chain of command. And you also uh, want to make sure that, you know, if that sponsor is high up enough, they'll be the person who brings your name in that, that meeting that you're not invited to. Yeah, I, I just wanted to add something to a couple things to that because a couple things you said, Katie, really jumped out to me. So kind of thinking about the quick wins and thinking about impact. Um, I think a lot of people approach mentorship and sponsorship from the standpoint of what they can get from the relationship, which of course, you know, that's why you're thinking about it. But um a guy that I met in business school, he kind of helped frame that a little bit differently um, for me. And it, it just really stuck with me um, to think about ways that you can add value before you're asking for something. Um, and that may be hard to, to do, right? If, you know, you know, you want to seek out a certain person as a mentor. Um, but I think kind of the way you laid it out was, was really important both in, you know, just your daily work, but also in relationship to or mentor or, or a sponsor. Um, because the reality is when you help people look good at what they're doing, they, there's just this very human magnetic thing that happens, right? Like they remember that, particularly if you haven't asked for anything <laughs> um, beforehand, you know, if, if you're just kind of like, approaching the situation in terms of how can I add value to this relationship or how can I add value to this person's you know, day-to-day? How can I help this person look good or make an impact? Um, and I think like that goes a long way. And, you know, I think approaching things in that way makes it such that many times you have sponsors that you maybe didn't even know about right, that are bringing your name up in the room because you do great things and and great work for people and make them look good again. Um, They remember it. It just just sticks with them. Um, I think the other thing I I wanted to to speak to that you brought up, you know, um, Matt, I think one of your, uh, one of the parts of this question was, you know, what are you excited about or what do you think needs to maybe change or improve? Um, being a black woman in tech is interesting. I think, you know, the amount of progress that's been made. So Katie, you've been, you know, in the tech industry for a decade now, I've been in the industry for 
three years or so now. And I think the amount of progress that's been made from the standpoint of, you know, just increasing the pipeline, you know, increasing the amount of people, amount of Black women in tech, and particularly the amount of Black women in leadership positions in tech, is it's too little. It Not enough progress has been made. And I, I just want to be very clear about that for you know, all of the successes we're speaking to and all of the the great career trajectories that we're speaking to, there are plenty of talented Black women who would, you know, kick, knock it out of the park and and, and aren't in the pipeline. Um, so I, I want to call, you know, attention to that very real fact. Um, but what I am excited about is something that you mentioned, which is just the power of community that I think, you know, we have um, as Black women in tech. Um, I just think the ways in which we uplift each other, we're each other's lifters and and the way we share knowledge with each other is something that's very encouraging to me. Um, I just think that community, that network, that support system is, is so important. Um, I think given the state of of things in the tech industry and how little representation for black people and black women in particular there are um i think you know unfortunately i don't think necessarily everyone is is always challenged to do this but i think one thing um we we have done and we have to continue to do is to keep forcing ourselves out of our own comfort zones as well. Um, Because the reality is, you know, (laughs) when you don't see that representation around you, you know, part of it is, is, you know, systemic, but then part of it is also like your own kind of internal mental dialogue, like, ah, you know, that the whole imposter syndrome, um, conversation like ah like should I really be here like do I do I really know you know what I'm doing and I think it's just there's just a certain amount of of vigilance that we have to um have in you know speaking great thoughts to ourselves I also think um one of the things that I'm comforted by is every time that I've stepped outside of that comfort zone and you know, gone and and asked a question that maybe I was initially scared to ask or, you know, been curious as you spoke to Katie or, um, you know, went and and sought help or or sought, you know, had a conversation with someone who who didn't look like me. Um, I've been, I've had fairly positive experiences in, in doing that. I think, you know, if you take that approach of sitting back learning as much as possible, asking, you know, all the questions you can to learn about a space and then, you know, focusing on how you can add value and then seeking out um, people in particular, whether they look like you or not. If you kind of take that approach, um, it, I, I feel comforted in the fact that I have been rewarded by that um, thus far. And I think that is, um, it, it is comforting to me. So, um, yeah, those are just some of my thoughts on, on being a Black woman in tech. I think another thing that stood out for me from what you said was uh, just um, thinking about, um, you know, how how to sort of like uh, be, a, I don't want to say be a Black woman in, in the field, but I, I guess it probably is being a Black woman in the field. It's like, you know, being in the tech industry specifically, I know we're talking about broader STEM, but especially being in the tech industry, um, you know, there is progress that does need to happen. Like, I know you mentioned that the leadership numbers are, are uh, you know, Black folk and leadership is, is not that much, you know, but um, the way that I think about it is like, how do we actually change that? How do we actually, um, you know, get more access to, to people who are graduating uh, with STEM degrees. Um, and, and to me, it's not even just graduating with STEM degrees from a four-year university. 
when I think about like some of these companies, like Microsoft was founded by a college dropout. Um, you know, Facebook was was also founded by a college dropout. Um, like we have to recognize that there are many people that I've worked with in the industry that have not even gone to college. You know, some people, some of the best people that I've worked with in the industry have been community college dropouts. Like I'm being serious, right? Um, so I, I think that that's something that we also need to challenge. Like so many people, um, I've heard this, uh, you know, in the broader industry upon um, interviewing that there have been folks who've said, you know, when seeking out, you know, predominantly um, like over uh, going outside of predominantly white institutions, going to HBCUs, for instance, to recruit uh, black students, that there is a whole notion of lowering the bar, uh, which is like, racist. I'm just going to be straight, straight up and say it's, it's, it's a racist, um, it, like that, the notion that you're lowering the bar is, is super racist. Um, given the fact that, you know, that many people have been hired into these positions who don't have any degree at all, um, who some people have been hired straight out of high school, if, you know? And so I guess what I would say about that is, Going to something else Jessica mentioned is about imposter syndrome. I truly believe that everyone suffers from imposter syndrome. And I think that um, by knowing that everyone suffers from imposter syndrome and by being transparent and communicating our vulnerabilities and, our, and being humble, and as Jessica mentioned, I keep saying, being curious and staying curious, I think that really helps change the environment for the better for everyone. And, um, you know, there is no innate, you know, you know, you don't you just wake up one day and have everything. I mean, I'm learning every day and I fail all the time. So if you have a very, you know, fail fast, experimental mindset where I'm growing constantly and I'm changing and building, um, then I feel like you don't suffer from imposter syndrome as much. But I do feel like certain communities suffer from imposter syndrome um, especially black people and specifically black women, um, I believe, because first off, there are not a lot of us. So you don't see a lot of people who look like you. You may never have worked with another person who looked like you. That was me for almost, you know, eight years, never worked with, you know, a person who looked like me. Um, but I think it's beyond that. I think the other part of it is that, to be frank, a lot of us are coming from backgrounds that we don't have people who've navigated these spaces before. Um, and we also are, are often, you know, we have the black tax, uh, we have, we're working, you know, sometimes twice, if not quadruple, you know, in order to just uh, be perceived as just competent or just like a, an ordinary person. Because when I show up, I'm showing up as not just Katie, I'm showing up as a black woman. Um, and, you know, I can't just be a technical program manager. I'm a black female technical program manager. So I have to, I wear my blackness. I wear my woman, my femaleness every single time I enter into, uh, uh, you know, or female perceived or what, you know, women perceived. I, I, I see that I, I show up that way in ways that I think that many people, they don't wear, you know, that their college dropout on their sleeve. They don't wear that they're, you know, uh, a, you know, a, high school dropout or whatever, they can somehow become normalized based off of uh, their exterior in ways that I can't. Question for you both. Very pointed question. Um, how do we use tech to dismantle white supremacy? Ooh, what a question. What a question. Um, Okay, I'm gonna give you the, well, first of all, this is a huge question and not one that we can tackle in the confines of this podcast. How much time you got? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have an interesting take on this though. Um, and you, so Katie, you hinted toward this um, a little bit and I'm gonna give, um, I'm sure you won't mind that, I'm gonna give a shameless plug to uh, go to college because I think um, one thing to to focus on. So I think you know 
climbing the corporate ladder is great. Um, I think, you know, making those tech salaries and, and, and showing, you know, other people how to do the same is great. But I think tech skills, right? So, you know, one of the, the core parts of programming for Code to College, for example, is, is teaching um, students coding skills. But I think those are tools and they're pathways to other things. Um, so much in the same way, and you, you know, you probably, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you probably along the way, right, Katie, I think at some point um, we started to, either we were told or, or told, you know, it, it was implied that like, hey, like I'm good at, you know, science and math. And really like what that did was propel us to, you know, kind of believe that we could do anything in a, in a way, in a sense. And that kind of led to stepping stones to do other things. Um, and where I'm going with this is, I think, you know, if you think about white supremacy, it's just so pervasive in so many parts of our lives. Um, and so it's not enough to, you know, be a product manager and a, and a technical program manager and, and, and live happily ever after. Um, there are just so many parts of the system that we have to tackle. And I think that is both by, you know, that's through climbing the corporate ladder, that's through, you know, some of the, the, the types of technologies we apply and some of the products we build. Um, but I also think it's just kind of seeing tech, right? Like seeing this as a collection of skills um, on the pathway to things like entrepreneurship. I mean, so for me, I think part of why white supremacy, it, this is not all of the equation, but I just think, you know, there's such an economic component to that. And there's such a component of, you know, generational wealth and lack thereof, like wealth is power in this country. <laughs> and, you know, when I say building wealth, I'm not just talking about working your great job and, 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 you know, going on, it's using that job, devoting those resources towards, you know, other streams of income, towards starting businesses, towards, you know, um, donating resources so that other people can can kind of you know come up as well. So I think there's so many ways to tackle this question, but one that's per that particularly has been on my mind is not seeing working in the tech industry as the end all be all. <laughs> Just seeing that as kind of a tool in my tool belt, right? And all of our tool belts to do other things. It's, it's a stepping stone is what it is. And so that's just kind of, you know, something that I've really been thinking about um, that, you know, like we're talking about our, our so-called success and that's great, but it, it just doesn't stop there. Like this isn't the finish line. Um, so, so that's kind of how I view it. Yeah. So I think we think very similarly, Jessica, about this white supremacy. It's a tool to sort of, you know, justify the underpayment or the exploitation or the oppression of groups of people, but it's for an economic reason to do that. So it isn't just for any reason, it's for specifically economic disenfranchisement. And so when we when I look at that and I think about it, it's like, okay, so how does this relate to the tech industry? So I do think like there is some value in, you know, you know, creating, pushing these, these black folks who are currently in tech and making sure that they can navigate the space and stay in so they can 
you know, go become CEOs or directors, et cetera. I think that is important. I think it's important to see people who are actually achieving and, and going through. Um, I definitely think that the pipeline is something that needs to be fixed. Um, I used to have mixed feelings about how do you balance, like which parts of the pipeline do you focus on? I definitely think that um, increasing the number of people throughout the every single juncture in the pipeline. So if you can find any holes in that pipe, you know, making sure you 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 sort of, you know, patch those holes is really important. So all the way from the beginners, you know, from elementary to middle and high school, making sure that there's access for them to matriculate into great universities, or if they don't want to go to university, getting into apprenticeship programs or et cetera. Um, there's also just the early career navigation and the internship navigation. How do you transition into, you know, the work workplace? But I do think that uh, the way forward, um, it, it looks like enabling access or, or, or like opening up access and bridging access to more people at all levels. So all that, I just wanted to add maybe one more quick thing, um, which is the reason I think it's such a big question is because white supremacy is such a big, a big question. And I think Tech has an important role to play, <clears throat> but it's not the only um, tool or lever we have to pull because um, if we're not careful, I think what happens is like instead of tech being used as a, a tool to dismantle white supremacy, um, it's used as an expression of that white supremacy, right? It's just kind of like a another expression of that. So... Um, I think that's why the access piece is, is so important because what you see is really it's white supremacy that just tends to be really pervasive in all other areas of life. So I think the access is and kind of changing the fabric of um, who's in charge and, you know, making that more equitable is, is, is really important because at the point where the tech industry mirrors all other areas of life, <laughs> um, then it's really just an expression of, of, of that thing, essentially, so. Great. So my my last question for you both, I'm, I'm big about action. You've all shared some great insights with me and with the audience, but I, I'm gonna ask you both the one discrete concrete thing that anybody can do who's listening to advance blacks in tech one discrete concrete thing and i'm going to make it time bound we're going for smart goals here you got one week so if somebody says i'm going to commit to this i'm going to do this in the next seven days one thing to advance blacks in tech all attention to all c-suite <laughs> executive executives and 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 founders and you know boards of companies take a look in the next week i would say take a look at your peers and commit to a goal of quadrupling at least um and it doesn't count if you've got zero um but but you know quadrupling assuming you have at least one um, person of color or black person in particular on your board, quadruple that um, and see what happens. It will change things. I want to say one more. Can I say one more? <laughs> now we got two. <laughs> two. Because I'm a big believer that dollars are important. So I know we're speaking as a collective and that can be, you know, at, you know, my level at, at, at all of our levels. But if we're just speaking generally, <clears throat> if I could see one thing change, um, that would also, that would probably be um, a commitment from all of the major venture capital firms over the next week just a commitment to fund at least one black owned tech company 
in this very appropriate month, February, because see what happens, what is interesting um, that happens, because um, we, we see this at all levels. We see this in, in high school. We see this when, you know, Black students are the first in their family to go to college. We see this um, when Black people and, and Black women in particular get into leadership positions in corporations. And we see it, I think, in entrepreneurship too. What happens is that those folks then reach back and create jobs, mentorships, sponsorship, et cetera, et cetera. So if I, I really think, and I, I just reject the idea that, you know, people can't find, that VCs can't find these awesome companies because I see who's getting funded, um, commit to funding at least one Black-owned tech company. And I, I promise there will be a difference. There, there will be a difference. I believe that. But I think one concrete thing you can do is just read up on, you know, a couple of your favorite, you know, tech companies, especially, and try to find the stats of those, of those tech companies, the, the demographics of their employees. Um, and also think about their business model and think about whether, you know, their business model is actually extracting from, you know, the black community, black consumers, especially, or like black people on like their social media network are really, you know, making that network profitable. So thinking about that, and that can be sort of fodder for a conversation, a bigger conversation about equity, you know, within that, that tech company. So I think one thing you can do is just really just read up on the company, research the company, think about how black people contribute to the bottom line of that company. Well, that is, that is excellent. I am so grateful to you both for spending so much time with me and sharing all of these incredible insights and inspiring so many more Black women than you know. Jessica Odiemi, I'm looking at you, president, <laughs> president company included. And Katie, I'm looking at you too. Thank you so much for the time and the wonderful words and all of the inspiration. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Technically 200. Don't forget to subscribe and visit us at technically200.com. Until next time.